Hi, this is Teresa Willard Hughes, and this is our ninth podcast. Can't believe it. There's nine of these so far. I want to thank each of you for listening and for those of you who followed us all along and welcome the new people who are joining us listeners today. What I wanted to chat today about is something that I've often used the term marginalized communities. I spoke of communities, colors, we could all figure that one out. But how did I define marginalized communities? Really comes down to looking at small towns, rural communities. Their voices are seldom heard. Many of people of color's voices are really or never heard. But I also wanted to find out if there is a comparison. What did we have more in common than we have? There's so much so much divisiveness in this country. I wanted to find if there are common grounds. I'm surprised. There's a hell of a lot more. I also didn't think that I could be the one who's doing the talking, so I've invited friends of mine who live in those communities to have this conversation. So I want to thank them. for. So here's what I set up. Each of them went away from their communities to college. Some stayed while they away for their careers, and then they returned. Each very supportive. But more importantly than anything else, as we were having these conversations to prepare for the podcast, during the podcast, following the podcast, they never once disclosed any of their clients' names. They said, oh, you know so-and-so. Yeah, I know that person. But they were respectful of their clients. And they never shared their names, which I found was amazing. Here's the other thing that I found was amazing. If you look at urban communities, or pretty much anybody who lives in urban community lives within a zip code. The majority of their life is within that zip code. They may go to the grocery stores, whatever they're doing, their churches are all within a limited area. It's very common for rural communities as well. Everything is within this one common community in which that they live in. Here's the difference that I found. The difference was that even if you're victimized in a small community, the people who may be servicing you know you. They know your family. They have been in these communities for generations. They may know your grandmother. They know who you are. So whatever issues that they have, services that you may need to be provided, people may trust them because they know them. They look like them. There are people who come from their communities, and there's this level of respect. For those of us who are of color, when we need help, often the people who service us, who come to our communities, don't look a damn thing like us. They don't understand us. That is the difference. This is what I found. The commitment, the issues, the concerns are very similar. As those of us who are victimized are very similar. The differences are, it really comes down to, is who is providing the services. I think you'll enjoy the interview between these two. Thank you for joining us. I greatly appreciate it. God bless you. And here's the interview. Thank you. Today, what we're going to be talking about is the six words, rape, childhood, sexual violence, incest, and silence, and the all too bigger ones, betrayal and shame. Would you introduce yourself? Hi, I've been in the education system for almost 20 years. I have an associate's degree in business management. I have a bachelor's in early childhood, elementary and secondary ed, and a master's in special education. And I work with all kinds of children and have been in various settings from early childhood clerk to the high school, even and in part C settings with children under the age of three in their homes. So you've you've dealt with a whole full range of community 
family issues. So the six words that we were talking about, I just wanted to find out from you, do they make sense for us to be able to have a conversation? I think so, yes. And the reason that I believe is that regardless of what community we're in, those six words are happening, regardless of what people might want to think. Right. When you're looking at childhood sexual violence, what is the earliest ages that you've dealt with people? Are you known of the situations? When I, just even as young as infants and under the age of three, working um, with an uh, agency that I worked with um, to help special needs children, I experienced that with children. I'm sort of confused. When you say special needs children, you mean children that have diagnosed with special needs and yes. they're sexually violated? Yes. yes, under the age of three. See, I've known of that from my work in Planned Parenthood for elementary to high school mm-hmm. young girls who are, are horrendously violated because of they had special yes. disabilities. Okay. There was a child that I worked with down in a community that was actually in foster care at the time, and the reason why was because of the sexual abuse. And the child what at the time I think was two, and it was a boy. And the predator was a male or female? His mother. I think that's something we need to eventually have a conversation about, for the number of young boys who are sexually violated by their mothers. Yes. Um, because that's a conversation we normally never have. It's always about the male who is a predator. But I know in certain communities, the first thing I always hear is always the little man in the house. First time I hear that word, I am terrified of what's happening to that one boy. Yes. So I just wanted to make sure that we knew what we were talking about and you feel comfortable in doing this conversation. I think so, yes. So one of the things I want to talk to you about is, do you think, in a small community, what are the issues that come up if you have to report a crime? Or will someone report a crime? Say that if I've been victimized, if I'm living in a small community where everybody seems to know everybody else from generations on, what is the likelihood of them calling the police? Well, me being in the education system, I'm a mandatory reporter. Right. So regardless, if I have any concerns at all, I do report. Um, my concern is is that things are not always covered maybe the way that they should. Um, there's not always privacy that me as a mandatory reporter, I have to share things with our social services, but then the parents find out who actually reported it. So in turn, that becomes an issue. Because the parents no longer trust you? Right. Right. Or the, then the child doesn't trust me either because I had to report it. Wait, is there a better way? I mean, one of the things I've been, I've been looking at is mandatory reporting to me terrifies me as a child. That's what you said. Because once I've been reported... Um, I could go immediately into the foster care system or removed from the family. Other members of the family is pissed off because they may be displaced as well. So that regardless of what happened to me, I probably need to have something. But the mandatory reporting soaks up the entire family, and I'm the one that's going to be blamed for years to come. Uh, And I understand that, and I see that on the other aspect. Coming from an educator, you worry about your kids, but... What we have in our community that is a struggle is you have these concerns and you are mandatory to call and make this report, but then nothing ever happens and things continue and continue and continue. So even if you do the mandatory reporting, that's no guarantee anything is going to happen. Exactly. Exactly. There was a family that I worked with with two younger children. One was five at the time and the other was four. And... It was in a preschool setting, and the mother was prostituting herself in a small town. She was bringing these men into the home. The children were sharing what was going on. The children were the one, the little boy that was older, 
acted like a caged animal, animal and couldn't even talk. And went on, I had a three-ring binder of documentation day after day of calls to social services, and nothing happened for a year and a half. For a year and a half. And then a new case manager came in, saw what was going on, and finally removed them. But then they removed them to an aunt who still gave the mom access to them all the time. So I, I think about those kids on a daily basis because they could be in their teens now, and so I, I wonder how they are. What happened to them? Yeah, I yeah. It's really is amazing because I think of mandatory reporting as this concept, as you said, that you could report and it could be reported forever and nothing really happens. And then when the hammer finally comes down, everybody is displaced. Mm-hmm. For, for me in California, the biggest scare I know that I have is the foster care system. The kids get placed in the foster care. Yes. And we're seeing for children of color, uh, the average age for a girl to be placed into Human trafficking is at age 12, and and where they come from is primarily the foster care system. That's helpful. And that's the part that scares the hell out right. of me. Right. And so what they're saying is that if you can look at a young girl at age 12 or 14 or whenever she goes in to human trafficking within the first two years, she will be sexually violated 6,000 times. That's awful. That's really what the, the scare that I have. The other one that I wanted to find out is, I know that as a mandatory reporter, you have to report. But I'm also wondering if the status of the whoever the perpetrator is, does that play any part? Not in your role as a mandatory reporting, but even if, the, if it ever becomes a report, do people fear who the person is that is a violator or they know them and that there's a whole context of jobs or whatever could be involved? Um, I haven't fully ever seen that where I am um, in a lot of the schools that I have worked in. It's a lot of high poverty, a lot of, um, so a lot of the families I've worked with, which is also, you know, because a lot of the abuse happens with high poverty children and families and so a lot of the families I've worked with have all been high poverty so I have never seen that with a job status along those lines or a certain position in town or anything along those lines. You don't say anything I thought Kit was about to say something. So that's a really concern that I know that that we have in our communities that it's not necessarily the income of the person but he has some type of status. That, that, that regardless of whatever that status is, mm-hmm. you know, he may be the head person in charge of the family. As a child care worker in this community for years, um, that was never an issue. We pulled kids out of uh, wealthy families, but most of them, of course, were uh, low income families because that's where the abuse apparently was and neglect was happening. But there was... Uh, no problem. In fact, a great deal of joy, I think, sometimes in pulling them out of a wealthy uh, or uh, famous family. Why? Because it's a small town and it's almost... Because the family members don't think they could be touched? Yeah. They're untouchable? Yes, that's that's what happens. I mean, and in many ways they are. But when it comes to, to Department of Human Services, nobody gets a buy. I think... They may not do their job. Right. But it's never because, oh, we can't mess with them. Mm-hmm. It's never because of that, I in my experience. I think a spinoff with that, with, say, some of the upper-class families that you had to take from, mm-hmm. and you can say that 
a lot of times the status or whatever the families think maybe they have more of a status than yes. what the rest of the community thinks they have for their status with their wealth and stuff. But, but the court system doesn't give them any slack, yeah. and uh, you know you have to, they'll go get a lawyer. They have they have so they better have a leg up there. They have better but, resources of how to handle of course. it. Yes, that would be the and difference. And cover it. And cover it. I think the covering it is the big part that I see. But in the defense of the human services, uh, there was no uh, hesitation for uh, moving in on a wealthy family or a poor family. Well, I think that the the differences that I've seen in wealthy communities that I know for domestic violence is they have been able to hide it for so many years. They could send a daughter off to counseling. They could send somebody out for this or out for that. They could give them resources. Where if you're poor, there's no friggin' ass resources for you at all. No. That, to me, is really where the tragedy is. Speaking of resources, what are your resources in, in a role for health care and mental health care? Well, we have, um, I'm trying to think about this. We have the social services. I know each district around has to, with families, have a delegate or somebody to go to, like if a child becomes homeless or um, that is required by the state of Colorado recently, um, as far as I understand, because I actually just had the contact in the other day, and I didn't know that person existed. I know everybody always still has access to Medicare on those aspects. That but how far away is the care? What is is it within the county? Well, oh, you mean the hospitals? And well, yeah. But yes. Sorry. It's okay. No, years, no. yeah. The hospital, years. I mean, the hospital, the one, the school where I'm at now, there's a small hospital right in town. Yes. So along those lines, there is a small hospital there. And where I've worked, there's at least been a and, hospital, but not too far. And I think Centennial, which provides services out here for all this part of the state, mm-hmm. is, I don't know if they have an office in you. They, they do, and they're actually getting some really good counselors through there good. right now. So, so they're getting the counselors. So it's okay. No. Uh, and so I do know that, that there's that, like the, Mente- the Met Centennial Mental Health, which is helping too. But I think that it's it's all across here, and it's really spreading the other two places that, which I'm gonna kind of stay where I'm at, but is Salude, that which helps, which is in Sterling and in Port Morgan. They are for families of low status. They do dental care, health care, shots of vaccines, and different. And they are how many miles away, as far as distance? From the town I'm at, both about 45 minutes. So they're at least a 45-minute drive, and there's no public transportation. In an aspect, yes, you can use what they call County Express, and if it is a medical reason as to why to be transported, they can bill your Medicaid to transport them. So there's access to be able to get to care. There is access, yes. I don't know if everybody always knows about it, but... Is there a hotline service? Do you guys have a hotline like for children who are... I know that there's a national hotline because I'm on Speakers Bureau for some of those. We do not have anything local as a hotline, no. And I know we share a lot of this stuff. Um, we're really pushing at our school about having a safe adult uh, along those, and it'll say I'm a safe, and a safe adult on different things like that just to help with like suicide prevention. I don't know, honestly, any of the phone numbers for anybody that they actually needed help. One of the things that we're thinking about doing is to try to develop a hotline for uh, what we're calling marginalized communities, which would include rural communities Uh and then communities of color, because some of the cultural issues may be different. Uh, as opposed to using the 1-800-FITS-ALL program. And what are some of the issues that you could have, like the safe adult that you're speaking of? That person has had some experience being abused, and that whoever's calling in 
can actually have a conversation with that person mm. and they can relate to them a hell of a lot better. Right. I think that may be able to help to be able for kids who are, are women who've been raped for the trauma that they've experienced so that they can have someone they could talk to to get them through that process. Do you think that would help in this community or any community? I think it would in some aspect, but a lot of the time when you talk about cultural, some of the different cultural differences in our community is in the Hispanic population, it is it is okay to be even more sexually active and stuff as a younger age. And I don't know that there's, I know of a 14-year-old right now that is pregnant. Yeah. They'll be going to high school next year. It's supposed to be with an older so, so cultural differences, is that what Yeah, no, it's a big part of what we're talking about. I, I really don't have anything to add. I don't know how to touch that. Well, I can say this on that. What we do know is that 3.3 million women are, are females are sexually violated between the age they reported their first time sexual experience was by rape or coercion. The girl was 15. The guy was 27. I don't think a lot of Hispanics were included in that, mm-hmm. in that conversation of, of doing that. That commonality of the guy who is so much older than the girl is pretty common happening. Yes. Because so many girls don't know how to say the word no. Yes. If you're trying to get your ass out of poverty and he's talking to you, maybe he's going to marry you. You're trying to get out of a horrible situation. Yep. I have a cousin who got married at 16. She was barely sick. She had no desires to have children or anything. She just wanted out of my shit whole family. So that's how she ended up doing it, getting married early. And the guy was a lot older. They just are looking for an escape. Yes. But I also think it's a part of culture that is acceptable. Yes. Um, and that's I've, a good way to put it. That's what I was trying to think. It, it's with that culture, or at least in the community that I am, it's very acceptable. But you're looking also at a real immigrant, like first generation population. Are they first or second or third generation? Um, a lot of the students have been born in the States. So Some they're first. Not. They're like the first generation, yes. So they're dealing with old-time parents, old-fashioned yes. parents. And a lot of parents that are still not, that may not... Be legal to the states. Right. Yes. I think an interesting element, and you can edit me any time, is the fact that this is a rural setting, and you have a Hispanic population that's growing, and I want to mm-hmm. use the word vibrant because it's younger and it growing. Is, it is. And then you have um, the population of the farmer families, so to speak, mm-hmm. who've been here for generations. Right. What do they do? What do they do for fun? What what do they have other than sexual activity and drinking? And drinking. Uh, well, you know, what do they have? I mean, is it, that is what what sets apart the rural setting to me more than a city setting? Right. Is that it's so um, isolated? Uh, well, it's sort of isolated. It's less so than it used to be, but it's isolated and. The social stuff, I think, includes quite a bit of sexual activity. Yes. A lot more than in a city. You mean for a migrant population no, or for, for no, all populations? For all populations. I'm, I'm leaving aside the migrant because it's different and not necessarily intermingled. But the population of the people who live, who uh, are the hereditary population here, mm-hmm. use that word, they're really mixed and there's not much going on other than social sure. things, drinking, 
party and well, is it, that true? Does that, well, that fit? Could be, it does, especially except for the times when I don't mean to be, you know, everything is very sports oriented, uh-huh, okay. you know, when there's athletics going on. But then lately, some of that stuff has even been going on during with athletes and stuff during that time, because they're, they're said you're not supposed to be you're supposed to be focused on that sport. You're not supposed to be drinking. You're not supposed to be doing drugs. You're not. You, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So and they're done all three. Right. And so, and you think about that, what growing up in a small community, you know, you can go to the movie, then that's over by 10. But then what are you going to do before you have to be home before curfew? Okay. So my question comes back to, is that any different than any other low income community? And the answer to me is no. Right. Because you don't have the funding anymore for. It's what you make of it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you don't, well, you don't have a, a community center that is actively vibrant, that's special yeah. around kids. So there's no funding for that anymore. A lot of kids in the in some communities I know, they can't afford to play sports right. because the sports are now so damn expensive. Right. You know, to be able to get on the team, the uniform, and the whole nine yards and the, and the insurance. That is different with the smaller communities. You usually pay a small fee, mm-hmm. um, but everything else is usually provided. Um, things are that that is in a lot of times if they can't cover the fee there are different scholarships and funds that can be covered for well that's really great so there is that in for the communities because that is not always offered um there's also the great thing if you but it's still as you said it costs money is the 4-h and getting in those aspects and well most times but it still costs a lot so that really makes a big difference of how to be able to do it so the other one that I wanted to ask you about is the Zero Tolerance Program. Do you guys have one here for your schools? Not that I can. Oh, so you don't have Zero Tolerance? Do you have, you have experience? So you haven't either? Okay, I'm not, because I'm looking at I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, okay. So Zero Tolerance is implied that if your kid is acting out, there's pretty much less than a, like a three strikes and your ass is out. You're expelled from school, you know, suspended. So you, yeah, so that's where... We're finding, like, for boys who've been sexually violated, mm-hmm. because, you know, you've got to be a man, you've got to do this macho thing, and you're hiding this big secret. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to talk. The only thing you know how to do is be a jerk because you're a boy at right. some certain age. Mm-hmm. And so they're acting out in school. And so when they're acting out in school, they get kicked out. Okay. They have a higher suspension rate. And in California, a lot of the schools across the country where they have large um, urban populations they have imposed these zero tolerance programs. So the kid never is able to talk about what happened to him. The only thing they're able to do is act out. And the moment they act out, they get kicked out of school. In that aspect, along those, I think it depends with each school and what what is accepted and what is not accepted. Um, we do not have a zero tolerance, but our administration is amazing. He really works on relating with that student. We had a situation with a student just a while back that had a violent outburst, and instead of doing like an OSS, which is an out-of-school suspension, we did an ISS because we knew if that child was home, there would be no lunch, right. there would be no support, and so it ended up being in school, yes, still got disciplined for that behavior, but being big enough, but yet in a smaller situation, we understand a lot of the circumstances for these kids, maybe a lot what's going on, and so it's kind of 
adjust. So we have policies to follow. They're kind. I don't want to say bent, but adjusted a little they're, bit they're, for certain students. If when we know like that student needed more support. So the reality is, being in a smaller situation has a benefits to those children. Exactly. Yes. As yes. opposed to a mandatory, your ass is gone. Yes, exactly. And that's really what I find in in more of an urban community. You're just out. I mean, mm-hmm. so the kids' education could stop at the sixth, seventh grade yes. because they're not acceptable to come back to any school. Exactly. And that's... So as I say, sometimes being in a smaller school, we don't have all the resources or anything else like this. But me being an educator, I know my students. I have students from that are not even my students that come across the school. I have a student that's not even mine that feels that I'm a trusted adult to come cry on my shoulder about a situation she had about her boyfriend, which is not anything with that, but do you know what I mean? She just needed that person. So that we may not have all the resources, but I feel like a lot of us, we understand the families, do you know what I mean? And they feel- No, I understand what you're saying. And I have to say, one of the things, the only thing that saved me growing up as a kid is I had great teachers. I had uh, teachers that I knew, they didn't know the set of circumstances, but they kept saying, you're smart, you could do this, you could do, and that encouragement that you're talking about that you're giving your students is really what takes them across the next line that they need. So yeah, you can have a whole bunch of resources. I mean, I, my kid, my, yeah, my two sons always either went to a great public schools or private schools and they have the resources. Right. But I've often even seen in those situations, nobody gave a real shit, uh-huh. but it's that teacher. And I think we could all probably name a teacher too. Yes. That mine was Mrs. Foley. Uh-huh. that said, you know, she told me this thing about college, and I had never heard of college. Now, mind you, I live in Richmond, California, and UC Berkeley was, what, 20 miles away? Maybe 25 miles away? I didn't even know UC Berkeley existed, okay? I mean, one of the greatest freaking-ass universities in the country. I lived 20 miles away from it, 25 miles away from it. I didn't even know what the word college was. Right. The only thing I knew was if I, got, if I was smart enough I could go to college, and it meant I could get the hell out of Dodge, and I didn't have to look at my family anymore. So I went to college with no concept what college was, other than F you, I'm out of here. Right. I mean, that right. was my idea of a college degree. Right. I think another thing when you go back to small communities, and I'm not going to say that all the small schools are like this, but the school that I'm at right now, working with the special needs kids that I work with, the student population is even supportive of so many of the kids. I mean, I'm not saying that there's not bullying and there's different things like that, but they're always, how do I put this? They're supportive of each other. You know, it's all about being a team, and our administration has done an amazing job about being a team and working together and being there to help others. And I'm not saying there's not stuff that doesn't go on, but... When I walk through the hall with one of my significant students and I have the most popular senior fist bumping him and giving him a high five. That says a hell of a lot. That says a lot. It says a great deal. So to me, I mean, the administration has done an amazing job. We may not have the resources, but we also have that sense of community. So it can it can be a positive thing, but it can also be a negative yeah. thing. So I... That's one of the shining lights that I've noticed since I moved out here 15 years ago is that the school system may not have all the resources of a big city, but what it's got, it makes up for in the smallness of it. 
and the people involved who all care, for the most part. I mean, even most of the students that I noticed cared. Uh, I mean, I used to do therapy in the schools, and I would travel around, and it was amazing. And, you know, this, this child that I'm seeing, everybody knows why he's being seen. But it's and very it's supportive. A, but it's not a stigma that he's not at all. Not at all. And it's such a small setting that actually has good resources for a small setting. You know, it, it's it's not um, they're not being deprived as much as you would think in a small school. I think it it's really, almost the other way around. They uh, people will actually seek out um, like. I'm thinking of one student that I know you were seeing at that time, yeah. and major trouble student. But everybody in that community pulled together to support that student to nobody's end. Yeah. Never held anything he had ever done against him. I think it's just amazing to have this conversation. Well, it's a rare thing for a big city person to come in and see that. Yeah, really and, and, but I've also noticed it because, like I said, of my own background, and I know the number of people that smiled at me or were kind to me, and that's the only way I meet it. I had good teachers, and I had people who were kind, and they smiled at me, and they said hello. With those days when I didn't think I even existed, but there was somebody who said something kind. And I've gone out of my way over the years to say hello to people, especially kids, Especially young black boys who everybody is like, oh, God, he's a predator. Well, you know, I raised two black boys, so, you know, know, knucklehead, yes, but not necessarily a predator or a horrible kid. But it was amazing the times that I would sit next to a kid on a bar train and say, hey, how's things going? It's like looked at me in surprise. Like you, woman, educated, you're not supposed to talk to me. Because they have not had someone be kind to them. Right. And it's, I really believe that regardless of what we do in any of these programs, one of the things that we're going to be talking about, what can we all do, is what you guys have just discussed. Notice them. Notice them. Be kind. Be supportive. I had a teacher tell me once, which it was my favorite teacher ever. She was my art teacher, but also helped me with math. She was just a genius. I just loved her to pieces. And I was having a rough day, and, you know, middle school stuff can be tough. Oh, God. Oh, you know, and I was just like, I can't be their friend. They're not being nice. And she told me to think about it this way, that you got to be nice to know no matter who else or whatever they need and to always smile. Yeah. And so she tells me this story about this man who had had things were just not going right, and he said, if nobody smiles or talks to me before I get to the bridge at the edge of town, I'm going to kill myself. And he walked through almost all the way through town and nobody said a word to him except for a little girl right before he got to the bridge. And she smiled and told him hello and he didn't jump off the bridge. It's, and it's, so she told me, you think about that no matter who you see, it could be that day for them. Your cousin over there is that He's guy. That's Uncle Ken. Well, whatever he is over there, him, he was that guy in my life. I never, she never knew what was going on, but I always knew he was kind and I could sort of saddle over there and he would smile at me or say hello to me mm-hmm. and it just helped me through. Right. Then there's still a group of people that I know that I, you could do that, mm-hmm. but I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. I say hello. The one that shocked the hell out of me is I was talking to this guy, 
on, on the bar train, and all of a sudden he whips out, this guy looked like, I don't want to see your ass in the middle of the night someplace. <laughs> but he whipped out a Tony Robinson book, and I was like, the F is this, right. you know? He goes, man, I'm into Tony. And I'm like, really? And he goes, yeah, I, yeah, I could do all kinds of stuff with it. I'm sitting here thinking, I normally would not want to see your ass at night, and now right. you're whipping out Tony Robinson? <laughs> and that, to me, is the difference is you see people and you have this perception, and the reality is all these kids want is somebody to talk to mm-hmm. or someone to touch them and say hello to them. Yeah. Whether they admit it or not. Whether they admit that's it or not. That's what everybody and wants. So right. Just even when I'm out walking down the hallway and there's a kid, I always look, good morning, I hope you have a great day. You know, yeah. I always approach that and my door is always open and I think, and I don't mean to, because my daughter graduated last year, but she's like, you're my mom, but you're everybody else's mom here too. It's important. I so, think that that's the biggest thing for the part of this program, what we we're talking about is what can we do? Uh-huh. And the biggest thing that you could do it takes like two seconds. Mm-hmm. Smile, say hello. Yep. It doesn't take a hell of a big genius well, to do it. And I think that also growing up in a small community, I see that a lot here because no matter, I mean, you drive down the road down here, you better wave because they're going to say, well, why didn't she wave at me today? They're getting, you're going to be getting that phone call later. And then they're wanting to know if you're okay. And do, do you know what I mean? Um, you know, we had, tragedy in our family when my brother was younger and it was right in the middle of hay season and everybody pulled in and did the hay for my parents while my dad my brother was in the hospital do you know what i mean it's just one of those i think that's the thing that we all need Uh i think that we all just need to be able to recognize what small act of kindnesses really make a big difference well, and whether we're in a big city, it doesn't matter. Or it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. I mean, it but, really But I think matter. rural people are luckier because the numbers help. Uh-huh. It does help to be so few of us. And we're all in this together kind of feeling that comes with, from living in a small right. town. Yes. We're all in this together. Yeah, we don't have a store. We don't have a gas station, but we're all in it together. But they find out you're going to the store. You may pick up right. something for this neighbor and this neighbor no. and this neighbor yes. before you I, come home. Yeah, see, I there's still a trade-off. That. I still do that with my neighbors. <laughs> but there's a trade-off that yeah. way that, that's nice. But, there's a, but it really comes down to, I think, and we're going to end this in a couple of minutes, but it really to me comes down to is that – so many of us have been isolated and shamed for what happened to us. But if someone were to say hello to us, you could break that shame yep. because you're finally being seen. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is the biggest thing that we could do. I agree. Okay, since, Kent, you weren't supposed to be talking, we'll say Very hello sorry. to you anyway. Because <laughs> I told you he wouldn't listen. I think he needs to be part of it, though. I thought it was no, he's going to be a part of it. Okay. I'll just leave this damn name out of it, but we'll edit that part out okay. so we're having this conversation. Because I knew he wasn't going to last with I knew he wouldn't either. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we, we both did that. <laughs> but, okay. I tried. Okay, so we're now going to say thank you to both of you for participating, and we're going to develop five questions, and then we'll post them on our website, and I hope everybody responds to it. And again, thank you, everybody. This is Teresa. God bless you. Bye-bye.